0: Several years ago, I was piddling around on the internet and I came across a message board for a Southern, basically just Southern gospel message board. And I was reading through the articles they had on there, the different discussions they had. And there was one uh, where they were talking about different Southern gospel uh, musicians they knew. And throughout the thread, they were kind of posting pictures of themselves with them to prove that they, they knew them. And as the discussion went on, they began to talk about just meeting them and and just having your picture taken with them wasn't the same as actually knowing them. So they acknowledged there was a difference between meeting them and knowing them and and the Southern Gospel singer actually knowing you and and they launched into a discussion about what it would look like uh, and what it took before you could actually say the Southern Gospel musicians knew you and you knew them. I thought about that discussion while I was preparing the message today. Because we're talking about a passage that talks about glory in knowing God. Now, what does it mean to know God? Right? I mean to say I know God. I mean that's a big statement, right? I mean that's that's a that's not a minor thing, that is a, a large thing. I know God. And we know there is a difference between knowing about God and genuinely knowing God. What would it mean for us to know God? What would it look like for us to know God? What would we how would we act if we knew God? Jeremiah gives us some answers to this in Jeremiah nine, verses twenty three and twenty four. When you find that I'm asking you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Jeremiah nine verses twenty three and twenty four. Jeremiah nine twenty three. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exerciseth love and kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We praise you for all you've given and done, for the opportunity we have tonight to to study your word and find out what it means to know you. Lord, as we look at your word tonight, let your Holy Spirit come and open our hearts to receive it. Father, let us not push back, but receive your word and let it transform our lives. Help us to be sure we know You, Lord, Jesus tells us a story in the Sermon on the Mount about people who live their lives thinking they know You, but when it comes to the end, they find out they truly don't. And they hear, Depart from Me, I never knew You. Father, we don't want that to be us. We don't want to know stories about Jesus. We don't want to know stories about what God is like or what God has done. We want to know our God. Because the Bible says we can So let Your Spirit tonight open our ears and open our hearts to receive this Word. Challenge us and change us. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Have Your way in all things. Fill me tonight with Your Spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what You want done or what You want said. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, like most prophets, Jeremiah prophesied during a time of national rebellion. The rebellion during Jeremiah's time was bringing judgment from God down upon them. And Jeremiah, like again like all the prophets, spent the majority of his time calling the people to turn back from God to avoid the judgment of God. And there are several long passages in the book of Jeremiah where he calls them on specific sins they are guilty of committing. There are also several long passages detailing the kind of judgment they are going to face if they don't repent. Now, Jeremiah 9 has proclamations of judgment mixed with exhortations for the people to turn back to God. The people weren't taking Jeremiah's prophecies and Jeremiah's words seriously. One reason for this was the false prophets. The false prophets were strong in the nation at this time and they were telling the people all would be peace. Everything would be fine despite the fact God said things would not be fine. Right now, this is a, and and the people were not taking it seriously because they were also beginning to trust in themselves and not really see their need from God. That's a part of what Jeremiah is is dealing with in verse 23, we'll get to in just a minute. But the wise people among them were saying they were too smart to believe in the idea of judgment. Others were, were mighty and they said, They were just too strong. They could repel any conquering army that would come against them. Others felt they were wealthy. And through their wealth they could pay their way out and they would be protected by that. They just didn't see a need to flee from the judgment to come. And so the temporary things they were glorying in were the things they felt would protect them from the coming judgment. But really what those things were doing was keeping them from actually knowing God. They were glorying in temporary things and trusting in them more than in the word of the Lord. And the reason they were doing that is because they did not know God. Look at verse 3. It says, and they bend their tongues like a bow for lies. They are not valiant for the truth upon the earth, but they proceed from evil to evil and they know not me. What the people said, what the people did, the reason they didn't care for truth, the reason they embraced lies, is because they did not know God. This idea is repeated in verse 6. Thy habitation is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me. Now that verse is really interesting. It wasn't through deceit they're kept from knowing me. right? This isn't so much a picture of them not having the ability to recognize truth from error, to not be able to know God. It's they were choosing. They were choosing what they knew wasn't true. They were choosing these lies because they made them feel good. They were choosing things that made them comfortable over truths that made them uncomfortable. And by doing so, it kept them from knowing God. Now compare that with verse 24. Let him that glorieth glory in this, that he know understandeth and knoweth me. So in these two verses, we see those who glory in temporary things. And those who glory in temporary things, they don't know God. And then we see those that do know God, and that's evidenced in the fact they are glorying in their knowledge of God. They're glorying about the fact they know God. Something in this that's important to keep in mind is... Jeremiah isn't writing to pagans, right? He's not writing to the Assyrians. He's not like Jonah with the Ninevites. These are Jews. They've been raised to go to the temple. They've made sacrifices. They, they probably have the Ten Commandments memorized. They, they know a lot about God. They have been raised to know God. They have been raised to worship God and to obey God. And yet they aren't because they have chosen other things. They have chosen to glory in temporary things rather than in God, and so they have kept themselves from knowing God. So the key truth for tonight, those who know God, glory in knowing God. Right? So there are those who glory in temporary things, and they glory in those things because they don't know God. And then there are those who glory in God, and they glory in God because they know God. Now the temporary things they glory in, wisdom and might and riches. We know those things aren't inherently evil on their own. They're just things. However, when they become the source of our glory and what we're trusting in, they keep us from knowing God. Let me show you how each one of those keeps us from knowing God if we begin to glory in that with wisdom. If you've ever read through the book of Proverbs, you know That it places a high value on wisdom. Gain wisdom above all else. Gain wisdom. However, the wisdom the Bible speaks of and the wisdom of the world are not the same. The the wisdom the Bible speaks of begins with the right view of God. The beginning of wisdom or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what Proverbs 9 and 10 tells us. So godly wisdom, the wisdom the Bible tells us to acquire, it starts... Not outside in anything else. It starts with this is who God is. This is what God's like. And now that I know that, everything else flows out of that. The wisdom of the world, on the other hand, it starts with man. It starts with what man can know on their own. It starts with what we can understand with our senses. What can I see? What can I taste? What can I touch? What can I smell? What can I understand by my natural human senses. And the kind of wisdom and glorying, uh, the kind of wisdom and glorying in this kind of wisdom, hmm, that's a badly edited sentence, glorying in that kind of wisdom will always keep us from knowing God. Because wisdom of man cannot know God. This is what the Bible says. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Now, that's a larger passage in 1 Corinthians about contrasting God's wisdom and man's wisdom and the glory of the cross. But this is the one that's really pertinent for us tonight. It is the determined counsel of God that people through natural human wisdom will never know God. So what this means is, we will never, through our natural senses, come to a place where we truly know God. We will never touch enough things and say, okay, I know that's true because I've seen it, I've felt it, I've touched it, I've tasted it, I've smelled it, therefore God is real, I know Him. That will never happen. There will never be enough scientific experiments That we come to, and scientists come back and say, look at what we've done. We have proven God. Now you can know Him by this. God has determined that man, through natural wisdom, natural effort, through anything we can muster and anything we can do, will never know God. Knowing God will always require faith. It always requires faith On our part, and this faith begins with the message of the cross. Right? Please God by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Those who want to know God must believe the message of the cross. They must believe that God became man and lived a sinless life on the earth. He died a horrible death on the cross as a sacrifice for their sins, and on the third day rose again. Now, of course, 1 Corinthians makes a point between the people who just think that's foolish and the people who are offended by that. And so, someone who can't... They're so smart, I just can't believe that a God would take flesh and live and die and rise again. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Those people, because they think they're so smart, they will never know God. In the same condition, those who hear that and go, wait, you're saying my sin is so bad that God had to take human form and die in my place, and I can't save myself, I can't fix myself? No, that is horrible, that's awful. I refuse to believe something like that. Those people will also... Never know God. But the wisdom of the world, which denies the existence of God and rejects the message of the cross as foolish or offensive, it is temporary. It will be proven to be false one day because the Bible says there will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. On that day... Everyone will believe, and all human wisdom will be proven to have been actual foolishness, while the wisdom of God was proven to be right. Earthly wisdom, man-centered wisdom, will always keep us from knowing God. Then it talks about might, and as you look at this passage and probably the context, I think it refers more to, than music, more refers to more than physical strength. But I think this isn't limited to the big burly man who glories in his physical strength. Probably, I'm sure it includes that, but it's not limited to that. I think it would refer to physical strength, but also any sort of power or influence a person may have in the world. Right? So in a country like in Jeremiah's day at Judah in Jerusalem, it probably referred to military might. Right? Through their military might, they gloried in that. That's one reason they didn't believe in the coming judgment. We can repel the armies because look at how powerful our armies are. It could refer to political might. It could refer to the power some families have, uh, or that someone has by being a part of a big or an important family. It could refer to power someone could have because of their station in life. Right, they're just born into privilege. It could refer to, to anything that would give someone power or influence in this life. Something that would cause others to say, I, I will bow to your will. What you say is more important than what anyone else says. Right, it would be anything along those lines. And glorying in might and power or influence, it will always keep people from knowing God because the moment a person begins to glory in anything of their might, their power, their influence, they cease to see their need for God. That they cease to see they need God. Look what the Bible says, also in First Corinthians. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things of the world to confound those which are mighty, and the base thing of the world, those which are despised. And the base things the world knows are despised, yea, hath God chosen, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Right? So, basically, in those first few parts right there, what God's saying is, God doesn't choose His team the way we would choose our team. Right? I mean, remember in school, when you would have, you'd choose up teams, play basketball Everybody'd get there and they'd pick two captains. Okay, we're going to pick the tall guy and the tall guy, and he's a good athlete and he's a good athlete, and then here and there, and okay, you you take the invisible player and we'll take Ross, I guess. I mean, it was all you know. We pick based upon natural skills, abilities, gifts, right? We we would choose our team very much in a natural, man-centered way. They will be good. They will help. There's things they can do, but God doesn't do it that way. God intentionally does not choose in that way. And he tells us the reason why, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So if God chose his team the way he chose, we choose our team, then people who were on God's team would say, God, you're so lucky to have me. You're lucky you chose me and I chose you because I could have been on the other guy's team and and think about what I would have done then. You're lucky I'm here. And yet the way God chooses His team is such that rather than those people saying, God, you're lucky, people go, "Woo, I'm so glad God has chosen me. Right? God intends... For no person to be able to glory in his presence. God will not share his glory with another is what Isaiah tells us. And that includes me and that includes you. So because of God we are in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Right? So all of our salvation it is based upon who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. So on the day when we make it to heaven, not one person will make it to heaven and say, look, I made it. I did this. God, you may have helped me out, but I carried the ball across the finish line. I am here because of me. They won't. When they make it to heaven and they stand before the Lord, they will say, I am here because of you. There is... No good thing in me at all is what Paul says. And that's what we'll say. Because we're not glorying in our flesh. And then he quotes Jeremiah. That is, it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. That's the point. So throughout our lives, we will always glory in God. Look at what God has done in me, and through me, and for me. And that will carry on right into the day of the final redemption. The person who glories in his might, in his power, his influence, will never be able to humble himself to admit their need for God. They will never say, I can't do it on my own. I need God completely and absolutely. A person who glories in their power or their influence or their might will never be able to accept their being held to the exact same standard as everyone else. I mean, that, that's really something we see in our culture, right? The rich and the powerful aren't held to the same judicial standard that the rest of the world is. And I think we see it really in Hollywood quite a bit. People in Hollywood, uh, rich and famous of Hollywood, they, they do things, they drive drunk, they drive on the sidewalk, they do all kinds of crazy things, they get arrested time and time and time again and they get One warning after another warning after another warning. But would that be what would happen to us? Would that be what would happen to Johnny Average if they got caught doing those exact same things? No. Because they're rich, they're powerful, they're influential. But God, God is not an earthly judge. God does not have one standard for these people He really likes and another standard for these people that are this man, whatever. Everybody's held to the exact same standard. And the rich and the powerful, those who are mighty or are trusting and glorying in their might, their power, their influence, they won't accept that. No, no, no. It's not. I'm I'm a little better than that person over there. I'm not held to the same standard. I. I it's not the same for me as it is for them. Those who glory in their might, their power, their influence, they'll never be able to accept they didn't have a hand, a big hand, in their salvation. Or their sanctification, they will always have to say, "I did this. Look at what I have done," and therefore, that's going to always keep them from knowing God. Those who glory in power, might, or influence will never know God. Then it says, "Riches." Those who who glory or trust in temporary riches will never know God. Now, to me, I think this is really. Relevant to our day because we live in a rich wealthy time but think about the story of the rich young ruler it's part of my Bible reading today the rich young ruler comes to Jesus what must I do to inherit eternal life Jesus says you know the commandments do this do that do that I said I've done those always from my youth And in Mark, is where I was reading today, Mark says Jesus looked at him and loved him. So that's an important part of the story. Jesus loved this guy. That's why he said what he said. He said, Oh, okay then. Go sell all that you have, give everything to the poor, come and follow me, and I will give you riches and an inheritance in heaven. The Bible says the young man went away with great sorrow. Because he had great wealth. And Jesus used that as a teaching moment to tell the disciples. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, one of the things I've heard growing up at times was that the the the, 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 the eye of the needle, what that referred to was a particular gate in cities at that time. And it was the, the needle gate or something along those lines. And, and according to the story, what would happen was, at night, they, couldn't, they wouldn't keep the, get the doors open, but travelers still needed to come in. So what they did was they had a small gate inside the gate, and it was open. And so the camel would have to, they have to take all the stuff off the camel and then take that to the side or carry that in. Then they would have to get the camel down on its knees and hunker it down, and it would crawl through like that, and then it would stand back up. And the the point of the story, as it was told, was it's really difficult for a camel to go through that needle gate. And therefore, it's really difficult for a person who trusts in riches for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And while that sounds good, it's not the reality. The needle gate didn't actually exist at the time Jesus made that statement. It didn't exist until hundreds of years later. When Jesus talked about it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, He literally meant the needle. A big camel going through the eye of the needle. And you say, wait, that's impossible. And it is, which is why the disciples said, who then can be saved? To which Jesus replied with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Right? And so the point, the story, is that those who glory in riches, those who trust in riches, cannot, will not, enter the kingdom of God. And therefore, they will never know God. Now, Again, I think that's startlingly relevant to our culture. Because we are a wealthy generation of people. We, if we're not careful, in our culture we can be like the Laodiceans of Revelation 3. We are rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing would be our assessment of ourselves. Meanwhile, the Lord's assessment of that wealthy church was you're wretched and poor and miserable and blind and naked they were lost, they weren't Christians they were not a part of the kingdom of God, they did not know God that's why I said the counsel for you to buy from me what you need anyone who glories or trusts in their earthly riches will not cannot know God God so these are the glorying in these things can keep us from knowing God one of my modern heroes of the faith is a man named Francis Chan he said something that I think goes well with this message our greatest fear as individuals and as a church should not be a failure but of succeeding at things that really don't matter so again there's nothing wrong with wisdom or might Or riches. But what a tragedy to be successful at acquiring wisdom and might and riches, glorying and trusting in those things only to miss God. Or or to put it in the words of Jesus, well, what happens if you gain the world but you lose your soul in the process, right? Or you forfeit your soul. You think about it in the world, in what matters in our world, wisdom, might, and riches. What a shame to gain all the wisdom we want, all the might and the power and the influence that we may want, all the riches we may want, and yet lose our souls in the process because we begin to trust in those things rather than than trusting in God. We glory in those things rather than glorying in our knowing, our knowledge of God. Only are those who know God, they glory in God. Now, there are those who glory in God, but then there are those who glory in earthly things, but then there are those who glory in God. But let not... Let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord. So, the one thing worth glorying in is that we understand and we know God. Now, the Hebrew word translated as know in the King James, knoweth in the King James, is the same word used uh, in Genesis in the Bible when it says Adam knew his wife Eve. So, it refers to an intimate knowledge, not a surface knowledge, not a superficial knowledge but a deep intimate personal and real way going far beyond knowing facts and figures and thoughts and ideas but truly knowing who God is and what God is like and in order to know God what we have to do is embrace God's revelation of himself this is this is critical to it like just a few minutes ago I said that we, man, through natural wisdom, cannot know God, right? So our own inventions will never truly make God or make us know God. Jesus, though, He said, the only way people can know God is if God is revealed to them. And God is the one who reveals. So God has revealed Himself to us in His Word. So the way we know God is by embracing God's revelation of Himself from His Word. And I say say this is critical a lot. I probably say it too much. If everything's critical, nothing is, I suppose. But this is really important. Because if God is real, and this is the key, if God is real, He is like something. Right? Say, He's like something, and therefore I can't make Him like I want Him to be, I have to understand Him and embrace Him as He is. So if God is make-believe, well then He can be one thing to me and something else to Red and something different to Judy and something different to Jackie and something different to Joe. Because God's just make-believe. But if God's not make-believe, if He's real, He has a character, He has a nature, He has a way He is, and so we have to embrace Him in that way. It's like if I were to tell you about my friend Scott Watson, and I were to talk about him—he's four foot five and he weighs about seventy-five pounds—and he's a huge, huge fan of the Texas Longhorns. You guys would say, "Who on earth are you talking about?" They'd be like, "My friend Scott." I'd be like, "No, Scott's like seven feet tall. He's an OU fan." I'd be like, "Well, that may be who he is to you." But to me, it makes me feel more comfortable thinking of Scott as four foot five and a Longhorn fan. You would think I was delusional. You, you would think I had lost my mind. Because Scott is something. He's real. He's not a figment of my imagination. I don't get to choose how tall he is, what he likes. I can either accept him as he is, or I can reject him. But those are the only choices I have. It is the same with God. God is something. And Scripture tells us what this something is. And our choice is not to say, well, I'm going to pick that and take that and let that go and and I'm going to mold Him like this. Instead, it's to say, I accept Him all that He is or I reject Him. But those are the only two choices I really have in life. So, God begins to reveal Himself to them, to remind them who He is is. And there's only three attributes God gives in this particular passage. And so it's not anywhere near an exhaustive list, but it seems to be ones that are based upon their needs at the moment. The people of Jerusalem are standing at the very door of judgment. If they did not repent, they did not return to the Lord, they would see the judgment of God for their sins. And so God is telling them. Who He is in a way that will help them to understand. His judgment is real. It is coming. right? It is what they needed at the time. So God tells us three things about Himself. One, He says, God tells us that they understand, I am the God, the Lord, which exercises loving kindness. God is love. People of Judah needed to know God loved them. God's judgment wasn't based upon the idea that He didn't love them. It wasn't as though God loved them at some point in the past. And then He had had enough of them and He was done loving them and so now He was going to punish them. Everything God had ever done in their life was because He loved them. A few chapters later, God will say the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness I have drawn thee. God's work in their life was based upon His love for them. He loved them and so He sent Moses to them. He loved them and so He led them out of Egypt. He loved them and so He brought them into the land that flowed with milk and honey. Then when they strayed, God loved them by drawing them to Himself, by sending prophets to go and say, Don't do this thing the Lord hates. Turn back to God. Everything God was doing, even this message at this time in this chapter, is God saying, I love you. Come back to me. Don't go down this path. We also must embrace the idea God is love. His love was demonstrated and proven on the cross. Everything He does in our life is to draw us to Himself because He loves us. His love doesn't change because of the circumstances of life. His love doesn't change when He allows us to reap what we've sown. His love doesn't change even when He is the one who sends chastisement and temporal judgment into our lives. God loves us. And all that He's doing is a part of that love. With an everlasting love, He is drawing us to Himself. That's the point of everything He's doing. And if we understand God is love, then when we stray, when we get off the path and God begins to make our lives difficult, we won't say, oh God, I hate you, you're so unfair. Instead, we'll say, how great God is that I have rebelled and I have turned away. And yet here he is reaching out to me, drawing me back to himself. What a loving and a kind God we have. But God not only exercises loving kindness in the world, but God exercises judgment or justice, some translations will say. The Israelites need to know even though God loved them, He would not excuse their sin and their rebellion. Yes, He is a God of love, but He is also a God of justice. And one does not gain priority over the other. In love, God was calling them back to Himself to turn from their sins, to turn back and receive His grace. And He would call the punishment off. But in His justice, He would punish them for their sins if they rejected His call and continued down the path of sin and rebellion. And one of the reasons the Israelites weren't accepting this truth was because of false teachers who were telling everyone in Jeremiah's day, There would be peace in Jerusalem when God said there would not be peace. You could Jeremiah 23 has a long discourse from God about the prophets and all the false prophets and what they were doing. And here's the ultimate in what they were doing. If you want to boil down all the false prophets were doing, it was this one thing. They were comforting people in their sin. Right? That's what they were doing. The people sinned against God. They broke God's covenant. They... They shall what God said, thou shalt not. And the false prophets came along behind Jeremiah when he said, Turn from that. Don't do this thing. The false prophets came along and said, It's going to be okay, buddy. God made you that way. Love is love. God can't expect you to hold to that old fashioned, outdated morality. Everything's fine. And that's what they were doing, they were comforting. People and their sins. And so instead of calling on them to turn from their sins and turn to God, they were telling them it would all be okay. Everything would be fine. And they were wrong. They were not wrong. They were lying. And what Jeremiah was saying here. What God was saying through Jeremiah was, God is not okay with your sin. God is going to punish your sin. God will never act outside His character and nature. And to excuse your sin would be outside the just nature of God. They needed to understand that just God cannot overlook sins. And regardless of what the false prophets say, God will execute judgment upon the earth. To truly know God, to truly understand God, we must embrace the just nature of God. Think about sin in this way. Why did Jesus die? The Bible says for sin. If sin is so serious that God would take on human flesh, come in the form of Jesus Christ, He would suffer because all of the beatings and all of the other things Jesus endured weren't the worst part. The physical torture wasn't the worst part. It was when the the wrath of God was poured out upon Him, God separated Himself from Him, and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And He endured hell on the cross. If sin is so serious that Jesus endured hell on the cross, how on earth can it be okay in our lives? How on earth can it be okay in anybody's life? So if we know God, if we understand who God is and what God is like, We must understand the just judgment of God. That He is just and He will punish sin. I think this means two things for us that we'll cover quickly. One is, we don't try to excuse our sin. We understand God will punish our sin. God will punish sin. That's why Peter talks about living your life in fear. Knowing there is no respecter of persons in God. Secondly, do not run behind people living in their sin and tell them they're okay. They're not. Do not find people you know who are living wicked, sinful lives in rebellion against God and tell them it's okay. God is pleased with them. It's not that bad. It is. When we comfort them in their sin, we are the false prophets Jeremiah warned against. We must not do that. God will exercise judgment in the world. And then God executes righteousness on the earth. This means God is always right in what He does. He never judges too harshly, He never lets people off too lightly. Whatever God does in the earth is right. God doesn't make a mistake. He is perfect in all He does and in all He allows. Now, If you've read the, the end of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations, you know what happens to Jerusalem is brutal. The judgment that's poured out is terrible. The Babylonians come in and they surround the city People literally starve to death. And they break down the walls. And they rush the city. And they level the city. And they kill the people. And they kill the crops. And they kill the animals. And they kill virtually everyone. Some flee. Some are allowed there. And then those that live are taken from their homeland. And they're pushed out into a different place. And there they must live out the remainder of or at least not the remainder of their days, for many of them it would be for 70 years. Here would be the temptation for those Israelites. God's unjust in what He has done. God allowing this judgment to happen to us, or sending it even, is unrighteous. We did not deserve that. And yet, what God is saying, His judgment is just. His actions were righteous. Righteous. Now, his judgment was just and his actions were righteous in part because he warned them. But it wasn't like they were going along under the smile and the happy face of God. And then suddenly God just was like, boom, and brought the hammer down. No, that's not the way it was. It was hundreds of years Of them resisting and rejecting God. Hundreds of years of God sending prophets. To cry out to them. To turn from their wicked ways. To turn back to the judgment. God's saying. This is coming. I mean it will happen. Turn now and I'll stop it. And they wouldn't turn. So God is righteous. Because He has warned them. About the coming judgment. God is righteous. Because He has given them a way out of the coming judgment. He is righteous. Righteous. Because the coming judgment is actually God keeping His Word. Part of God being righteous is God has to do what He says He would do. And this means the promises of God He must keep. Not only the good promises, but also the difficult ones, the hard ones. God was righteous in His judgment. And God is righteous in the future judgment that will come in this world like the Israelites before us we have been warned in advance about the judgment to come like the Israelites before us we have been told there is a way to avoid the judgment to come through repentance and faith in Jesus like the Israelites before us God has sent messengers and His Word and His Spirit to call upon us to turn from our wicked ways. To turn to Him. And if we, like the Israelites, continually reject God's call and God's way to avoid judgment, we will face the judgment to come. And this is a righteous act of a righteous God. God's coming judgment on this world and upon people. It is an expression of His righteousness. And if we are to truly know God and understand Him, we must embrace the righteousness of God in all He says and in all He does. Those who know God, Glory in knowing God. So tonight, what do we glory in? Are we glorying in temporary things that actually keep us from knowing God? Are we embracing God's revelation of Himself? Or have we created a God in our image. And it's a kind of an image of what we think God ought to be like. The reality is God does not need to be fixed. God is perfect in all He is and in all He does. In any attempt, we have to fix God to minimize an aspect of God that may make us or another person uncomfortable. Rather than fixing God, we make Him less than He is. We create a God in our own image. We make an idol that keeps us from ever truly knowing God. And either we embrace God as He is, or we reject God. And we never know Him. These are really the only two options we have. So the question to leave with, do you truly know God? Do we truly know God? Let's pray. Our Father, we love You tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Help us. Father, glory in knowing You. Lord, our our world... Elevates wisdom and might and riches. And it is hard to keep our hearts free from coveting those things. And when we have them, it is hard to keep our hearts from glorying in those things. Keep us from it, God. Let us glory in the fact we know You let us be sure we know You. Not an image of You that makes us comfortable. Not a lesser version of You. But You. As You are. As You have revealed Yourself in Your Word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.